Hey everyone, this is Noah. We're going to take a brief hiatus from our study through the Ten Commandments this week to look into the life of Joseph in Genesis 50 verses 14 through 21. What I'm bringing you today is a sermon that I preached last Sunday, and I think that it's helpful because it's a reminder to us that our God is good, sovereign, and wise. So we're going to take a brief break from our study through the Ten Commandments, coming back there within the next couple of weeks. But this week, I just want to study and dive into Genesis 50 verses 14 to 21 and remind you of who your God is and how he is sovereign, good, and wise in your suffering. So join me as I go through Genesis 50 verses 14 through 21 this week. Think with me for a moment about what normally happens after a funeral. Yes, I know, that's an odd way to begin a podcast. Anyways, hang with me for a moment. Think about the conversations that typically are had after a loved one dies and after the funeral has passed, after the food has been eaten, after everybody goes home, after those things, when the reality of life sets in. It tends to be time to talk about the next steps. What are we going to do with the will? How is the money going to be divided up? How are we going to handle all of these things? There have been many times when families argue, children fight, and houses divide over what happens after the death of a loved one. You may have had some of those experiences as well, but I highly doubt any of us have had the same conversations that Joseph's brothers had after the death of their father, Jacob. Rather than saying, what are we going to do with the will? They were saying, dad is dead. Joseph is going to kill us now. To Joseph's brothers, they thought that all of his financial and material kindness to them was just because of Jacob. Now that Jacob is dead, the real Joseph is going to come out and he will destroy us. I don't think any of us have had a conversation like that after a funeral, or at least I hope we had it. So this week, we're going to walk through Genesis 50 verses 14 to 21. We're going to study these verses together. However, there is far more going on here than simply fear, worry, anxiety, and reconciliation between brothers. This text is about someone far greater than Joseph and his brothers. What Joseph says in response to his brother's fears teaches us a big truth about our big God. This chapter, especially verse 20, shows that God is sovereign, wise, and good in our suffering. In these verses, we read the end of the story for Joseph and his brothers, and it really points us to the end of our story as well, but we have not made it there yet. Right now, the call from your doctor that your cancer is back may and will still come. You'll find out that your loved one has died in a car accident. The relationship you care so deeply about will come crumbling to the ground. Children will go astray, jobs will end in depression will strike. The question then is how do we face our suffering while we are in it? There is coming a day when God will make all things new. Everything will be right. There will be no more sin. There will be no more shame. There will be no more sorrow. But we still live in the day when trials come and life is hard. So what do we do now? We must know and believe the truth that this passage preaches to us. We must know and believe that God is sovereign, wise, and good. We must believe that God is in control, knows how it must work, and that the end is good 
for us. That's how we face our suffering. So let's begin by reading these verses. The Bible says in Genesis 50, verse 14, And Joseph returned into Egypt, he and his brethren, and all that went up with him to bury his father, after he had buried his father. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us, and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass it is, as it is this day to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Now before we get to the end of the story, we need to be reminded about what has led to this point. We can know the end of the story, but unless we know the steps that led to the end, it doesn't really impact us that much. For instance, you can read the Chronicles of Narnia and know that at the end of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pavenzi siblings are kings and queens of Narnia. But unless you know about Lucy and the Lampstand, Edmund betraying, the battle with the White Witch, and Aslan rising from the dead, the story doesn't really have much of an impact on you, the end of it. you got to know the whole story. And it's also true with Joseph. We need to be reminded of the greater context of Joseph's life. Now, you know, we first encountered Joseph in Genesis 37, when he is really the spoiled child of Jacob. He was the beloved son of Jacob, and he gave Joseph the coat of many colors, and his brothers hated him. And he didn't do anything to help his case. He went to his brothers and he told him, hey, I've dreamed a dream, and you're going to bow down to me. That didn't go very well. It wasn't very good for Joseph. In fact, later on, as you know that his brothers saw him coming one day, and they said, Behold, the dreamer cometh. And they said, Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. Let's destroy him. But they had a little bit of restraint, and they said, You know what? Let's just throw him into the pit for now. And then eventually they sold him in to slavery. He's been ripped from the comfort of his home and is now a slave all alone in a foreign land. He's no longer the beloved son of Jacob. In fact, Jacob thinks Joseph is dead at this point. He's just another slave. Joseph experienced the pain of broken relationships and the terror of being alone in this. Then he makes it to Egypt, now as a slave in Potiphar's house. But not all is bad because God is still with Joseph. Potiphar appoints Joseph and exalts Joseph and makes Joseph second in command in his house. However. Potiphar's wife came against Joseph. She attempted to seduce Joseph, but as the song you and I may have sung, he put on his running shoes and got away. However, Potiphar's wife wouldn't let that happen. She said that Joseph did something to her that he did not do to her, therefore destroying his character and causing the anger of Potiphar to rise up to throw Joseph in to prison. So he sent him to prison for what his wife said he did. Forsaken, abandoned, betrayed, and now criminalized. It's very bad for Joseph, even though Joseph has largely not done wrong here. 
Joseph may have been prideful and arrogant from being the, the beloved son, but Joseph didn't do anything to deserve to be sold into slavery by his brothers. He certainly didn't deserve to go to prison, but now he's in prison. And even there, God is still with him. And God elevated him. And then one day, the butler and baker of Pharaoh that are in prison, they both have a dream and they tell Joseph about their dream because they couldn't figure it out. And Joseph says, well, for one of you, good news. You're going to be elevated. You're going to be brought back to the Pharaoh. You're going to be brought back to your position. But for you, baker, you're going to die. Then the dream is fulfilled. And when the the butler leaves. He asks him to please remember me when you get back to Pharaoh. That seems like a very fitting, a very fair request. However, the butler did not remember Joseph for two full years. So now many years have passed. Joseph is still in prison. He's elevated in prison, but he is not at all where he thought he would be. Life is not good for Joseph right now. But then Pharaoh has a couple of dreams, and he has no idea what these dreams mean. He has the dreams of the seven lean ears of corn, the seven fat ears of corn, the seven lean cows, the seven fat cows, and he has these dreams about the lean ones eating the, the fat ones and all of these things, and he has no idea what it means. But then he is reminded by his butler. The butler it almost like strikes him and says, oh, wait, I remember a guy who interpreted my dream in prison. So they call Joseph up. And Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh because he says the interpretation belongs to God. And God gives Joseph the interpretation of the dream. And Joseph tells Pharaoh what's going to happen. Egypt is going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. But in the seven years of plenty, they need to prepare for the seven years of famine. And Joseph says, you need a man to do this. And then Pharaoh says, okay, you're the man. And he elevates Joseph to second in command in Egypt. And it seems like life is good for now for Joseph because eventually he gets a wife, he gets sons, and then he's reunited to his family. And we don't have time to talk about all of that in this episode. But it seems like everything is good. Everything is now right in the world until later on when Jacob dies. We'll spend a lot of time at first 20 drawing out every drop of truth we can. But before then, we need to walk through the rest of the account in Genesis 50, verses 14 to 21. This brings us to the end of the story. This is like the final period on what we encounter in the life of Joseph. And in Genesis 50, verse 14, the funeral procession is now over. Joseph and his brothers, they went and buried their father in the land of Canaan, but they now have returned unto Egypt. And then something strikes Joseph's brothers in verse 15. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. It's very interesting that it says they saw their father was dead. It's almost like his brothers at this point are kind of like, wait, dad's dead. It's like they missed the funeral. They missed the procession. They missed all of those things. But what the word saw there really means is that they understood what the implications of the death of Jacob meant. And you can see the color rush out of their faces as their hearts drop to their stomachs because they think that the death of Jacob means that Joseph is going to turn away from them and he's going to pour out wrath upon them. 
They believe that Jacob was the dam that kept the flood of Joseph's wrath from rushing over them. To these brothers, they thought that every act of kindness displayed by Joseph was simply a front. Beneath the gifts, tears, and words, there was a raging fire of hatred and animosity towards them. He treated them like that because of Jacob. But now Jacob is dead. And they thought Joseph would definitely hate them, that he would be ready to pay them back for the evil that he's done. He's going to pay us back. And to them, this made perfect sense, and it makes perfect sense to us as well. They had done much evil to Joseph. When you look at it from the brothers' eyes, they were the reason he was sent into Egypt. They were the reason he was sold into slavery. They were the reason he went to prison. You can trace back every bad thing that came into Joseph's lives to what his brothers did when they sold him into slavery. And now they're thinking in their logic and in their mind, it makes perfect sense for Joseph to destroy us now. But they didn't want that, of course. They were men and they didn't want to die, even though they thought their brother would want to kill them. So they sent a messenger. And they sent a messenger who's to Joseph to tell him, hey, your father did command us before he died, saying, forgive, I pray thee, the trespass of thy brethren. Apparently, Jacob had said to forgive the brothers. And then they asked for forgiveness for their own sakes as well. But they couldn't even go to Joseph themselves to ask it. They just sent a messenger. And they told Joseph, please, please forgive us for what we have done. But what was Joseph's response? Was he saying, oh, I'm ready to judge you. I'm ready to pour out my wrath upon you. But it says, and Joseph wept before them. Joseph wept when they spake unto him in verse 17. He wept. This is a flood pouring out from his eyes. Joseph was torn apart because of his brother's view of him. That they thought it was all a facade. That they thought it was all an act. It broke his heart. And you and I know that the life of Joseph and the man Joseph points us to Christ. And this one sentence points us to the true heart of Christ so well. Because we are the brothers of Joseph in this story. We're not Joseph. We're the brothers. We're the ones who rejected, despised, and afflicted Christ. We're the ones who sinned against him, rejected him, and despised him. But when we come, he is not angry. He is not steaming. His heart is not burning within him to destroy us. But he longs to give grace, to give mercy. The heart of Christ to you is not one of fire. It's not one of brimstone, dear Christian. It's one of grace. And for those of us who are in Christ, we know he's forgiven us. We know that he saved us. But deep down, you may think that there is a burning, raging passion within him where he's ready to get us. He's ready to strike us. This is not the heart of Christ, but he is meek and lowly in heart. And this points us to Jesus. But after this encounter with the messenger, the brothers came before Joseph and fall down before his face. And they say, Behold, we be thy servants. They say, Please, whatever you do, we're ready to do it. Show us your real identity. Show us your real agenda. We'll be your servants. We'll do whatever. But Joseph's response was not, Okay, sounds good. He said in verse 19, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? Rather than vengeance, Joseph had mercy 
Rather than retribution, Joseph had grace. Joseph was wronged by them, immensely and supremely wronged, yet he didn't find retribution. He did it because he knew that judgment belongs to God alone. And by the way, you and I must know this as well. When others do wrong to us, we must take this road and know that it is not our job or duty to take out judgment upon them, but to trust God in it. Vengeance belongs to him and him alone. And rather than getting revenge, Joseph promised to do good for them. In verse 21, he said, Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Both in verse 19 and 21, Joseph tells them to fear not. There's no need to fear because I won't get back at you. My heart is not of retribution, destruction, and revenge. I've not been waiting to pay you back. This is absolutely amazing. He says, I'm going to take care of you. This is the opposite of how we would probably want to respond. Someone ignores our text, cuts us off in traffic, or doesn't wish us a happy birthday, and we're ready to drop the hammer, aren't we? Yet Joseph would continue providing for and loving his brothers and their families, even though they had done him immense wrong. This requires grace and a big view of God. How did Joseph respond like this? There are two truths we must see in verse 20 that will help us see how he responded like this and how you and I can as well. Joseph knew, first of all, that God was in control of his trial, and second of all, Joseph knew that God works all things for good. He knew that God was in control of his trial. In verse 20, But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. If you go to eat somewhere with your family, everyone may have a plan about where they want to eat. Some may want Chick-fil-A, others Texas Roadhouse, or whatever restaurant you want to go to. Who determines, however, where the car goes when there are differing plans? Ultimately, unless the one driving the car just takes the car where he or she wants to go, it doesn't matter what anybody else wants. And this points us to what is going on here in verse 20. Both the brothers and God had a plan before the trial came. The words thought and meant are the same Hebrew words. It means to devise plan and purpose. Both the brothers and God had intentions for what happened in Joseph's life. And this is both a difficult truth and a glorious truth. Joseph's brothers had intentions for him, but God did too. Notice that it said God meant it unto good. He did not take the evil intentions of the brothers and flip it around unto good. He didn't see the brothers throw Joseph in the pit, sell him into slavery, and send him away with the Ishmaelites, and then go, oh snap, I need to fix this. God does not look upon the lives of his people and fix it as it goes along. He's not a problem solver, figuring out things as they come along. He rules and reigns over the bad in your life and has intentions for it before it ever comes. This is a hard truth, but what Joseph was saying about all that happened was that God intended for you to put me in the pit. God planned for me to go into slavery. God sent me to Egypt. God put me in Potiphar's house. God put me in prison. God put me in the palace above his brothers, above the slave traders, above Potiphar, his wife, and Pharaoh. Joseph understood that God planned the years of affliction, trial, and hardship. This isn't just made by Joseph either, the statement. Listen to what the psalmist 
said, while recounting God's works for Israel in Psalm 105, verses 16 and 17, moreover, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant. God sent Joseph before them. The one behind all of this wasn't the brothers Potiphar or Pharaoh, but God was behind it all. He grafted the blueprint. He was the architect of it all. God is not a remodeler who sees what is already there and figures out how to fix it. He is the architect and constructor from the beginning. He plans what needs to happen before it ever does. He plans the good and the bad. This is hard because it teaches us a somewhat uncomfortable truth. But when you see this truth, it changes everything about how you view your trials. God isn't just the redeemer of the storm. He's the one who sends the storm. God is the one who sends it all into our life. And this teaches us that God is sovereign. He's in control. And it means that there is no accident in your life. If we had a God who could transform the bad into good, but wasn't in control of what comes into our lives, we'd have nothing more than a superhero. We'd have a God who could swoop in to save the day, but we need a bigger God than that. And the Bible preaches a bigger God than that. There are no accidents in our lives. And because this is our God, we can know that there are no accidents or aberrations in our lives. This is your God. Whether it's cancer, whether it's a broken relationship, whether it is a general trial or frustration in your life, you can know that greater than the trial, greater than the circumstance, there is a God who oversees and rules over it. It's not an accident. And God is the one who sent Joseph. He did it all. He was behind it all. But he didn't just mean what happened. No, but he had a purpose in it. That's why we see the second truth. God works all things for good. Joseph said to bring the pass as it is this day to save much people alive. God meant the trial for good. Both the brothers and God had a plan for Joseph in the evil. The brothers obviously wanted harm. They wanted death, but God meant good. They may have had a bad plan for Joseph, but God had a good plan. And here's the good news. Because God is the one who is ultimately over everything that comes into our lives. No one's bad plan against you can override God's good plan for you. Not Satan, not your enemies, not even yourself. There is one who rules over your entire life that has the final say on everything that comes into or out of your life. And his purpose is good. So how was Joseph's trial meant? For good. It says to save much people alive. If we don't read the rest of the verse, this may be our response. God's good was that Joseph be exalted in Egypt. God's good was that Joseph have a wife and two sons or that there was a family reunion. And these are all good things. But the good that came from Joseph's suffering wasn't even about Joseph. The good that God brought out of it was good for many, many people to save much people alive. This is obviously referring to Joseph's role in the famine. He went through what he went through to be where he was when he was so that he could interpret Pharaoh's dreams and lead Egypt through the famine. If Joseph hadn't been there, Egypt would have enjoyed the blessings of the fruitful years without preparing for the years of famine. 
they would have no clue it was coming. But because God was in control, he exalted Joseph for the years of plenty and famine so that Egypt would be saved. If Joseph hadn't been there, then the land and the people in the land would have died. And not only in Egypt, but those in Canaan who were experienced the famine would have died as well. And there's an even bigger problem to this. The covenant family of God, Israel, would have died as well. And this points us to an even bigger problem and an even bigger salvation. It's the biggest picture of it. Because the famine was in Canaan as well, Joseph's family would have died. Any other family could have been wiped out and it would have been tragic for them. But if Israel's family had died, it would have been tragic for the whole world. They were God's covenant family and through them the Messiah would come. So then, if a famine takes out Jacob and his sons and his grandsons, if it takes out Judah through whom the Messiah's line would come, if it takes out all of those, then Jesus could not have come through the line that God said he would come. This is a big, big problem. You see, there's something bigger going on here than whether or not the people of the time didn't die from the famine. But God is working out the story of redemptive history. He is working out the plan of redemption all the way back in Genesis by saving Israel and by keeping them alive. This is our big God. He was working out his plan of salvation for the whole world. God was working it for good. But what I want you to notice here is that for Joseph to experience the good and for God to use the good in his life, he had to take every step of the trial. If Joseph hadn't been in Egypt when Pharaoh had the dream, he couldn't have been interpreted the dream and led them through the famine. But if he hadn't been in prison for the extra two years, he couldn't have been called up to interpret the dream. If all of these things had not happened, if Joseph hadn't been lied about by Potiphar's wife and sent to prison, he wouldn't have been there for that. If Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery by his brothers, he wouldn't have been there for the famine. You see, there was no fast forward button and Joseph had to take every step of the journey to get to the end. That was good. The only reason Joseph was in Egypt was for this point in time. And God orchestrated and providentially designed every step to get Joseph here for this point. And brothers and sisters, we know from Romans 8 verses 28 and 29 that God's end for us is good as well. It is good for us because it is for us to be like Jesus and God works all things together for good. There is not one thing that comes into your life, no matter how good or bad it may seem, that is not ultimately given to you by God to bring you where you need to be for his honor and for his glory. Not one thing. You can't skip past any of it. You can't fast forward past any of it, but you must live through it all. And God uses it all and ordains it all for your good and his glory. And what we see in this text shows us how we can navigate and face 
our suffering because this text reminds us that our God is sovereign, wise, and good. That above what we can't see and what we can't understand, God is in control. And he's working it all together for good. Joseph did not know what God was doing until he got to the end of what God did. He didn't know that God was bringing him to save much people alive until he saw his brothers. And I believe it was in Genesis 45 and told them, I know why God sent me here. And brother and sister, you're not going to know what God is doing while you're suffering and while you're in the trial. But you can know that God is at work and God is doing good. Therefore, you must trust him. We are not floating through this life hoping everything turns out okay, but there is a God in heaven who's guarding our steps and leading us down the journey. Therefore, in our lives, we trust that he's sovereign. He is in control. We trust that he is good. Everything that comes is ultimately for good. And we trust that he is wise and know that every step of the journey must come in the way that it comes for God to bring us where we need to be. This is what we learn from the end of the life of Joseph. God is sovereign, wise, and good.